Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 164. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we uh, invite your Holy Spirit into this study tonight. Indeed, it's actually the reverse. You have invited us into your very throne room to sit and to learn of you. You are the host and we are the guests. We're the ones who are here to um, to worship you and to learn of you and to study your words. And so um, we pray, Lord, that the study will be fruitful, that you'll give us a supernatural capacity to understand and to retain the things that we're learning. We pray that you'll continue to bless us and to strengthen us and to protect us and to keep us safe during these um, very stressful pandemic days, but we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the blessing and the glory and the praise for all of these wonderful things. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. Welcome, everyone, to the Live Internet Studies. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi, and this is a, a study on um, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh, my. The Live Internet Studies is broken up into two 30-minute segments. I'll talk about that a little bit later in the middle of the uh, study. But right now, let's just jump straight into um, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Episode number 164, we're almost done with the study, and we're in section number 17, like you can see on my screen, uh, covering Romans 14, verses 20 and 21. What does everything is indeed clean mean? Let's read the passages in question and jump right in. Romans 14, 20 and 21, ESV, I'll read that for you on the uh, left side of the page. Paul says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Let's go back up and read the Greek real quick, SPLG and T version of the Greek. Right side of the page, uh, verse 20, me, let's try that one again. Me eneken bromatas katalue ta irgan tutheu panta men kathara ala kakan to anthropo to dia praskamatas estianti kalan to me fagen krea meda kien oinan meda in ha ha adelfa su praskapte and then in brackets we have a variant um uh, some words that were added or taken away, depending on what uh, perspective you take. But either way, it may not show up in every translation. But it says, a skandalidze tai, a asthene. End of verse, end of brackets. All right, so basically what we're looking at in a nutshell is this uh, phrase where Paul says, everything is indeed clean. The standard Christian answer is that in regards food, everything is clean here is Paul's way of explaining to Gentile Christianity that and Jewish Christians who were listening at the time is his way of saying you don't have to worry about the dietary list in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 14 God has cleansed everything he's changed his mind Jesus it, by his death has wiped out the ceremonial parts of the law and rendered them null and void and um, fulfilled and because these things are fulfilled in Jesus I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Because all of this has been fulfilled in Messiah, there's no longer an emphasis to be placed on the ceremonial and the civil parts. Only the moral parts of the law remain. 
And so um, ceremony has been done away with. The temple's going to be, you know, the temple eventually is going to be destroyed. Uh, Paul didn't write that it is being destroyed, but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it was like 10 years from the time that Paul wrote uh, Romans, maybe 15 years before the temple would be destroyed. Um, but the, the general gist of these passages, everything is indeed clean, is interpreted when it comes to food as um, all things are permissible to eat. Everything is indeed clean. However, what we're learning is that the Greek word clean, the Greek word, uh, the the English word clean in the Greek is kathara, and it's from a Greek word uh, katharos, which can be rendered innocent or um, uh, clean is, is, is a good rendering, but within the context, it can simply mean um, something that is in a place where it is waiting to be specified by some other definition. Um, and so we're working from that um, uh, interpretation. So let me just jump down into my notes uh, instead of dilly-dallying so much. I'm trying. I'm not trying to rush through the study, but I think I've covered a lot of this in previous studies, so much so that I think most of you are catching the gist of um, wh what I'm really trying to get at here. And so um, I'm just going to read this, starting right here in my uh, uh, commentary. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to read it without stopping till we get to the end of the section. So just follow along. I won't go fast, but uh, since it's self-explanatory, I think you'll be able to catch this, okay? Sorry. All right. Um, so we're talking about uh, these last, uh, well, verses 20 21. What I say in my commentary is that this set of verses actually continues Paul's thoughts from verses 14 through 18 above. And there, I say, we learned that the word that Shaul opts for when confessing that, quote, nothing is unclean in itself, right? So we've got the Greek again, uden koinon dihau too. And so the word when we mention uh, unclean there is actually koinos. So that's the context of his kind of technical discussion. Um, to his re readership, you know, 2,000 years ago, he probably didn't have to go into great depth to explain akathartos and koinos, Greek words for uh, unclean and clean and or or um, um, uh, clean or defiled or or uh, um, you know different kind of variations depending on what your English uh, translation shows. But um, there were at least two working words in Paul's day, uh, akathartos and koinos, and they could both be rendered either unclean or um, uh, common or uh, uh, you know um, somewhere along that lines of you know defiled, um, but. He probably didn't have to go into too much definition in his day because what we have to learn by our uh, standards, by 21st century standards, is that the two words had nuances. And one of the words carried a nuance that was rooted in God's authority to define an animal and thus food as clean or unclean. And the other word had a nuance of being rooted in the authority of a, from a man's perspective to um, add additional uh, definitions or specificities to animals or food from, that God had already said were either permissible or not permissible. It's not to seek to change God's definitions. Rather, within the religious world of Judaism in Paul's day, the additional wording, the koinos word, um, uh, was brought in to uh, deal with 
um, foods that you would find in a marketplace or, uh, you know, they had questionable origins if you're a religious Jew, things like that. So that's what we're talking about without getting terribly technical. Um, uh, that's what we have to deal with because remember, these, these passages are 2,000 plus years old. Um, and so it would be wrong for us to simply just think that Paul's talking about clean and unclean by today's standards. That just wouldn't be fair to the text. So let me continue. What Shaul is discussing are matters of biblically defined food being declared by one man as okay to consume, right? Katharos, clean, versus another man declaring it not okay to consume, i.e. koinos. So, God says chicken is okay. Well, I mean, that's a bad example because the text doesn't actually just say chicken. God says lamb is acceptable to eat. You can eat it. The, the lamb is acceptable. The meat derived or food products derived from uh, lamb are acceptable, provided you follow all the other rules, right? Uh, slaughter it in a certain way, pour out the blood, uh, take out the, the, the what we call the forbidden fats. Uh, you can eat the other portions. Um, within that general mindset of lamb being permissible and a, a clean animal, and thus food products derived from it being clean, then if that lamb were to be found in a common Gentile marketplace in Paul's day, where it could possibly have been used in um, connection to a, a, an idolatrous ceremony the day prior, before it being found in the butcher, but you know, in the in the in the local butcher shop, well, then at that point, it's okay for a man like a religious Jew to come along and say, "This is." Koinos, it's defiled, it's common, which is what literally the word koinos refers to. It's common, therefore it's off limits to me because of it being defiled with its connection to idolatry. However, a Gentile might come along and say, no, it's not koinos to me, it's not common, it's not defiled, it's actually katharos. It's clean, meaning it's it's okay. Now, by the Gentile come along and saying that it's katharos, it's clean, it doesn't mean that either one of these uh, people that I'm describing in my little scenario, it doesn't mean that either one of them is trying to change God's definition of a clean animal. They're simply adding an additional marker, a designation, a label, as if you will, to the lamb so that they can understand the food derived from that animal is actually either uh, acceptable to consume or um, not acceptable. That's what we're talking about. So when we're talking about Paul's statement in uh, this letter, particularly this particular chapter, uh, all is clean, all is not clean, you know, uh, everything's unclean and things like that. He's using clean and unclean words within the context of um, uh, God is the foundational definition. We can't move that marker. We're not changing God's definitions. What we're simply having a discussion is one man's opinion about what is um, what he found in the marketplace and another man's opinion. Okay, so it's not an issue. I want you to catch this. I'm, that's why I'm pausing for a moment. You've got to catch this or you're going to misunderstand the passage. It's not an issue of Paul saying, I've got lamb on one hand and ham on the other hand. And which one of these is clean? That's not the question. That's not the issue. That's not the discussion taking place. The discussion is lamb in one hand and lamb in the other hand. And which one of these, um, where was one, where, where are the origins? One came from the temple of God, and one came from the temple of Artemis, or Diana, or whoever, uh, a pagan god. And therefore, even though they're both derived from the same animal, they, they both come from lamb, right? They're both 
uh, clean animals to begin with. Nevertheless, only one of them has a, a source that God would endorse, right? His own very own temple. The other one uh, came from a source that God is abs- absolutely going to reject, an idolatrous source. And yet, and yet, and here's the secret, and you have to read through Colossians, I'm sorry, Corinthians catches, and yet, even though it, it was associated with idolatry, Paul's going to call come along and say, actually, idols are nothing. And as long as you as believers aren't partic- participating in the idolatrous ceremonies themselves, then the foods that are sold in the common marketplaces that that had their origins in the in the uh, idolatrous place, as long as the food was acceptable from God's perspective, you can eat that food as well if your conscience will allow you. Right, so that's where um, we have to massage this passage and and get the proper meaning from a first century context before we launch into our twenty first century applications. So. I say in my uh, commentary that um, Paul's conclusion to this passage uh, in Romans here is um, found near the final few verses. So let's just read those. Um, this is just uh, Romans 14 itself. is Romans 14, uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 20. So 17 through the end of the passage. All right, the end of the chapter. So let's just read it real quick. Uh, Paul says, this is Romans 14, starting verse 17, for the kingdom of God. This is his conclusion to the whole matter, right? He's trying to bring this discussion to a close and get them to understand where these discussions and differences of opinion on food should find their place in the community. Is food important? Yes. Is it important enough to have a, a meaningful discussion? Yes. Paul devoted an entire chapter in his letter of Romans to the issues of these these food differences. So obviously it's, it must have been important enough for Paul, and it's important enough for the Holy Spirit to um, um, preserve Paul's letter for us to read it 2,000 years later. But but um, most importantly for Paul is that even though food is an important issue, right? you got to eat to live, nevertheless, it's not something that we should come to blows over. It's not something we should disfellowship over, not something we should excommunicate people over. Even if people are bringing, even if we were to bring the absurd example of someone bringing pork into the discussion, which Paul isn't, but even if they were, it's not still not something that we should be excommunicating one another over. What does Paul say? For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, shalom, and joy in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. This is David Stern's rendering. Verse 18, anyone who serves the Messiah in this fashion both pleases God and wins the approval of other people. Verse 19, so then let us pursue the things that make for shalom and mutual building. Verse 20, don't tear down God's work for the sake of food. True enough, all things are clean. All things are katharos. All things are innocent. All things are all food that's acceptable from God's perspective, once you find it in the meat market, it's waiting for another person, depending on his conscience, depending on his religious background, to come along and say, uh, this is either koinos or it's katharos. Koinos would be um, defiled and um, katharos would be clean. Uh, I can either bring it into my home and eat it, serve it up to my family, or I can reject it, uh, even though God says it's it was from a permissible animal. That's allowable. True enough, all things are in that position, food. True enough, all food is innocent in the position where it can be either uh, accepted or rejected. That's what Paul means. But what is wrong, right, what is certainly not innocent, notice the kind of the contrast, what is wrong is for anybody by his eating to cause someone to fall away. So again, context, eating is important, but eating is not 
the most important issue that's either going to break or make or break your messianic communities. No, no, no. Verse 21, what is good is not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Can it just kind of reemphasizing the same idea uh, to put food in its proper context? Don't eat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. What does that mean? It means the priority is your brother. The priority isn't food, right? You're going to you're gonna put your brother out of your community because he, he broke your understanding of cash root? Nonsense. What, you know, what are you thinking? Paul's going to slap them around, right? Line them all up like the three stooges and, you know, slap, slap, slap. Um, what Paul is really trying to uh, get them to understand is that we have been brought together as Jew and Gentile and Messiah by his precious blood, by his death, by his resurrection, by his intercession. We are filled with his precious Holy Spirit. We've been given his words as a community. And that is the most important thing. And because of that, as fellow brothers, Jews and Gentiles and Messiah, even at a larger community level, where we've got a broader community of faith known as Judaism and a smaller community of faith maybe known as the church, no matter what, we've got to demonstrate uh, to the people around us what it means to call one another brothers, right? Adelphoi or Adelphos. Um, brotherhood is is most important. That's going to be um, a, a primary um, factor in determining of you know fellowship and communication and things like that. Not food, not food. Because I mean, hello, uh, it doesn't matter if you keep kosher or not. At the end of the day, you put it in your mouth, give it a few hours or give it a few days, and it's going to come out the other end, and all of it's going to be defiled. All of it is unclean. It doesn't matter how clean it was going in. It's all unclean coming out the other end, right? Right. Remember Yeshua's words in Matthew. I'm sorry, in Mark uh, seven around verse nineteen, right? It's not what goes into a out the defiles them, but what comes out. Thus, uh, you know, he declared all foods clean. <laughs> uh, so, uh, catch the context. Starting in verse 22, or continuing in verse 22, Paul says, the belief you hold about such things, speaking about food, keep between yourself and God. Happy the person who's free of self-condemnation, right, when he sees food and has to try and figure out, was it, is it defiled by the idol, idolatry? Happy is the person who's free of self-condemnation when he approves of something, when he approves of food that was sold in the marketplace. Well, that's a good place to be, right? Look at this cut of lamb. It's, you know, it was half off um, and it was sold in a Gentile butcher. Um, should I serve it up to my religious Jew? Maybe not. Because once he finds out it came from a, a local Gentile butcher instead of the kosher deli or kosher butcher just on the other corner, well, then he's going to reject it. But uh, as a Gentile Christian who's still part of the community, you know you're keeping kosher according to God's standards, right? You're keeping the Leviticus 11 list and the Deuteronomy 14 list. It's lamb. It's not ham. It's lamb. You're eating kosher and catch this, even though it was um, it was uh, used in idolatrous ceremony um, the, the, you know, the day earlier, you didn't participate in that ceremony, so your conscience is clean, and hey, it's a good cut of choice, a, a, a cut of lamb, right? It was half off or whatever. So, happy is the person who is free of self-condemnation when he approves of what? Something, but in the context, he approves of this particular piece of lamb that he's going to be able to serve up to his family. But, in context, or in contrast, but the doubter, right? So the person who's not quite sure, but participates anyway, he's like, well, I'm not sure if this was, if this is defiled by the idols. It's still lamb. God said it's okay, but 
you know, it was used in idolatrous ceremony. I don't know what, what would Paul say. I, I'll sneak it into my house anyway and let's eat it. No, Paul says the doubter comes under condemnation by his own conscience, by the way, not by God. The doubter comes under condemnation if he eats. Why? Not because God said you can't eat it. I'm pausing for effect. He comes under condemnation if he eats because his action is not based on trust. He doesn't trust that the food is been that the food is okay to eat, that everything is indeed catharos, everything is indeed clean. He doesn't believe that. He has questions because of the idolatrous uh, um, association, because of its questionable origin, right? Um, so because of that doubt, his conscience is condemning him, and because of that, his action is not based on trust, and anything not based on trust is a sin. So he is sinning against himself based on um, the uh, uh, state of his knowledge of the of uh, his, what we call called his mastery of the situation. So that's kind of what's going on. So let's continue through this. We'll probably be able to finish this little part tonight and move on. I got to save some room for the liturgy tonight because I uh, my liturgy is going to be a special request from one of my um, YouTube commenters who asked me, "Could you read this? Could you explain this?" And so I'm going to do that tonight. It'll take a little bit longer. All right. Here's what I'd say uh, in my commentary. The word that I underline above in verse 20, when Paul says all indeed is, is clean, is the Greek word katharos, which we looked at in the Greek, which is defined as clean, pure, blameless, or, there's the word I keep opting for, innocent. Innocent, right? Everything is innocent. And I use the word innocent because um, I'm, it, in, that, in that regard, innocent, meaning it's waiting for another person to come along and either label it as uh, okay, right? Green light, thumbs up, or to label it as uh, red light, thumbs down, right? Uh, no, don't don't need it. But either way, the animal itself doesn't get to choose. Um, we're talking about or the food product derived. So again, please don't get confused. We're not talking about clean versus unclean from God's standard. We're talking about, when we say innocent or katharos, we're talking about clean versus unclean, or really, it's better to say defiled versus not defiled, or um, um, uh, something like that, rather than saying clean, um, or common versus uncommon, or whatever. Um, we're, waiting, we're talking about man's definitions that come alongside of God's definitions and uh, give uh, additional um, uh, guidelines. Think of it, if, if, if you're losing the context, a, a good way to think about this is... Think about having a discussion between a meat eater and a vegetarian. And then you set a hamburger down in front of the two people. From God's perspective, well, maybe that's not the example. Let's, let's go back to the lamb. Meat eater versus vegetarian, and you put a cut of lamb down in front of the two people. From God's perspective, lamb is kosher. So is chicken, by the way, even though the Bible doesn't come right out and say that you can eat chicken. You deduce it from uh, logic, from um, um, logical deduction that chicken is kosher. But lamb is actually stated right there in the text, black and white. No question, no equivocation, no ambiguity. You can eat lamb. It's kosher. The animal's kosher. Therefore, the food derived from lamb, like lamb chops and lamb cuts and things like that, those are all kosher. So you set that down in front of a meat eater on the one hand and in front of a um, vegetarian, on the other hand, question, which one of them is going to eat the lamb? Well, it's obvious from my example that the meat eater will eat the lamb. But the um, uh, the, uh, uh, the vegetarian sitting next to him is going to abstain. Does that mean that the vegetarian is breaking God's cash root laws? Absolutely not. He's not violating any Torah commands. The, the Bible doesn't command us to eat lamb. It gives us the option. So in this example, the lamb is katharos. It's innocent. 
it's not been declared by either one of these men as uh, I'm sorry. It, it's it's innocent waiting for each one of these men to make their decision based on their own personal lifestyle. So the mediator says it's okay. I can eat it, no problem. But the um, to the vegetarian, basically for all intents and purposes, that lamb is koinos. It's common. It's um, it's defiled. And and it, why is it defiled? Not because of its association with idolatry or anything. At least not in my example. It's quote unquote. Um, uh, koinos or defiled simply because it's meat, right? Simply because he's a vegetarian and he doesn't partake in meat. So that's what we're saying. Is it a sin for him to do that? No, nope, absolutely fine. He can you can be a vegetarian and 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 be in 100% uh, uh, obedience to God's word. No problem at all. All right. So um, in conclusion, uh, we had Tim Haig who commented on this particular Pauline passage uh, in his uh, commentary to Romans. And I'm going to skip past that just for, for time's sake um, and jump right into uh, – you can go back and read it on your own. He's talking about basically what I said. But um, let's just jump into my commentary and finish this. I say, again, just to be absolutely clear, right? I maintain that Shaul is not teaching us that the dietary list of Leviticus 11 has been discarded. That's the common, traditional, popular perspective from today's 21st century Christianity, and it's based on centuries of Christian interpretation that the law has been done away with, the kind of the law-free gospel. Jesus fulfilled the law, so we as Christians don't have to concern ourselves with the law of Moses anymore. Uh, Romans 6, 14 and 15 all over again. Uh, we're not under the law, we're under grace. Uh, you know, what should we do since we're not under the law, we're under grace? Uh, shall we, what, uh, all that, that whole kind of line of thinking or reasoning or mindset that, that Paul is teaching his Gentile Christian readers and communities that they don't have to concern themselves with the law, which of course would include the cash root laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. But I think that is the weakest way to interpret Paul's Writings, and in fact, it's outright, um, uh, it's outright uh, in error. It's wrong. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's not factual. Uh, Paul, we don't have time to go into it right now, but um, we will probably jump into it next year because I'm gonna, um, I'm entertaining going back through certain um, portions of my Pauline studies and just doing some like, concentrated looks at certain passages about being, uh, you know, uh, Pauline difficult sayings in Paul and things like that. But so you'll have to wait till next month, which is the beginning of the year for that. So let's keep reading. Here's what I say in my commentary. In fact, instead of saying that the law is done away with, in fact, Shaul is really reiterating what his teacher, the master Yeshua taught him. All is clean. And I might add all is clean, but all is not food. Okay, all is clean, but all is not food, or all is innocent, but but everything has not been permitted by God. So all is clean. That is until a man comes along and declares it otherwise. Meaning all is innocent until a man comes along and says it's either koinos, that is to say, it's defiled, it's common, or it's katharos. It's okay. It's clean. It's 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 innocent. It's fine. I can I can eat it. So it's it's up to it's up to us to make those dip, those spe- um, um, specifics. In the end, though. And here's the danger. It is our petty differences and pride that eventually divides us. Food simply becomes what I call the innocent medium that 
we fight about. So what happens between two people who can read the Bible and come to differing conclusions over what is clean and what is not clean? A food fight breaks out. Yeah, okay, pun intended. End of my commentary says, Shaul states that food should not be the point of contention. This sounds amazingly like Shaul's instructions to Timothy in his first letter. And then I have this quote from um, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, which I'm not going to read for... Uh, uh, Time's sake, you can go back and read that on your own. But let me give you the uh, the commentary to uh, what Paul says there, and this is where we'll conclude tonight. What we see in the passage above is foolish men within the Torah communities were found to be pushing their foolish agendas on everyone around them, judging those who didn't hold the same opinions as them. That's the first problem, right? Judgmental attitudes. Exactly what was taking place in Paul's day over table fellowship. People judging one another over uh, the origins of the food, over their choice of fast days, um, possibly feast days, but probably not um, uh, holy days and things like that. I don't think that was part of the context, but definitely judgmental attitudes over... um, origins of food, uh, eating food that was sold in common marketplaces, um, uh, you know, and then what days you would choose to abstain. So we're talking about a fast day in conjunction perhaps with um, your diet to your choices and things like that. I go on to say uh, in my commentary, are we to imagine that Shaul's solution, and when I'm talking about solution, I'm talking primarily about Romans 14, but this is actually rooted in what he said, what we read in Timothy here. So the two are taken together. So just follow along with me. Are we going to imagine that Shaul's solution, right, to the problem, judgmental attitudes, differences of opinion about food, blah, blah, blah. Paul's going to step in, and this is uh, an imagined solution, okay? This is not what I recommend. It's just an imagination, so just follow along. Are we to imagine that a solution is to what? Simply yield to these apostates, the ones that are spoken of in Timothy. Yield to these apostates and accept anything and everything under the guise of ecumenism. 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 Why am I stumbling over that word? It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. Ecumenism. All right. Which is a a word that refers to kind of the idea of... um, bringing all uh, viewpoints together in agreeing kind of, um, let me just click on the word and show you the definition, the principle or aim of promoting unity among the world's Christian religions. So it's kind of like uh, Protestants and Catholics saying, okay, let's just settle our differences and let's just all get along. Uh, Unitarians and Trinitarians, okay, let's just put all of our differences aside and agree. Now, I'm not saying there's anything uh, inherently wrong with uh, trying to agree with one another, being peaceable with one another, being amicable is what we would say. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a good goal. That's, that's, that is what we should be seeking to do to the best of our ability. There's even a verse that talks about that. If possible, live, uh, seek, you know, live peaceably with all men. What, but what, uh, what I'm cautioning against is simply compromise. Compromise. When we know that something is wrong, when we know that something's ungodly or unholy, and I'm going to talk about this here in a second, like give you an example. When we know that it's clearly against the word of God or against God's standards of righteousness, and yet we find a community that's engaged in those um, unrighteous practices, right? Not everybody out there who labels themselves Christian or religious actually is doing the right thing from God's perspective. There are plenty of religions or even Christian denominations in the world that are um, engaged in questionable practices, right? Unethical or un, un or immoral or outright unbiblical. 
and yet they still call themselves Christian. So are we to imagine that Paul's simply come along saying, you know, everything's acceptable. i got to go back up to the passage so you can understand. Where he says in verse 4, everything created by God is good and nothing received with, sorry, everything created by God is good and nothing received with thanksgiving needs to be rejected. Why? Verse 5, because the word of God and prayer make it holy. Okay, we can't use that as kind of a, a once, a, a kind of what we call a, a, a magic bullet, silver bullet, a panacea, I think the term is, to say that this just applies to everything. And um, in my example, I say, are we to imagine that Paul is saying that, okay, yeah, these apostates are teaching some bad stuff, but you know what? We got to all come along, so let's just accept what they say, right? They're forbidding marriage and they're forbidding foods that were created by God to be eaten. You go back and read the passage. But are, is that really what Paul wants us to do? Just lay down our arms, stop fighting, and accept anything and everything, you know, kind of like the um, umbrella flag, right? Accept all forms of love. And so what do I say in my commentary? Are we to now accept that homosexuality is okay? After all, um, there are Christian homosexual groups out there, uh, same-sex groups, that say, you know, we prayed over it, we, we believe that God accepted it, um, we, and, and therefore the Word of God uh, says we need to love one another. And so under our understanding of, of the Bible, um, homosexuality is acceptable, same-sex marriage is acceptable, and therefore because of prayer and the Word of God and because of what Paul said in, in the passage in Timothy, well then I guess everything's good. But really, is that the best way to understand the uh, the uh, these issues that we deal with? I ask, how about adultery? How about fornication? Right. So we've got issues that are brought into the table of discussion for us as Christians. We're not talking about what the world says. Okay, forget that perspective because that's outside of God's standard of righteousness to begin with. Of course, the world's going to say homosexuality, same-sex marriage. Sure, green light, thumbs up. We have no problem with that. Of course, the world's going to say adultery, fornication, green light, thumbs up. Hey, we have no problem with that. Just keep it, you know, keep it civil, keep it safe, keep it adult, um, you know, keep it consensual, and all that other stuff. The, the world doesn't care about all that. So we're not using their standards. We are different. We're the body of Messiah. We're the church. We're the chosen. We're those who have been called out. We are those who should be filled with His Spirit and filled with His Word. We walk a different path. A different standard. So I say in my commentary, if you have answered no, with an exclamation point, right, all caps, no, to these questions about homosexuality and adultery and things like that, adultery, and why would you say no? Because the word of God will not allow you to answer otherwise. If that's how you uh, have uh, interpreted the passages, which I hope you have, then you must follow through with your hermeneutic principle and apply the same answer. And when we're talking about, um, you know, is food acceptable? Uh, which food is acceptable? Which one's not? You must allow that same answer to, uh, to uh, and apply, I'm sorry, your same answer to the question of whether or not everything is now to be considered food and ostensibly, which is supposedly received with prayer and thanksgiving. And why do you have to use the same standard? Because the Bible doesn't give us the license to pick and choose when it comes to what is holy and what is not. We're not allowed to look at the Word of God and go, hmm, homosexuality, oh, that's wrong. That's clearly wrong. But keeping kosher, no, that's done away with. 
because guess what? Both of those topics, homosexuality and the kosher laws, they're both found even in the same portions of your Bible, which is the book of Leviticus. God's standards of what defines um, righteous relationships between humans, right, marriage and, and things like that, and sexuality, the same God who defines those topics and tells us what is right and wrong, what is black and white, what is good and what is bad, it's the same God that gives us the definitions of what food is clean, what is not clean, and what we can eat and what, what we should avoid. So that's where I'm going with this discussion. Let's continue. This passage, and when I say this passage, I really mean the Timothy passage, but we can bring in the Romans passage because it's the same author and um, it's kind of the same underlying uh, hermeneutic principle. The passage is not suggesting a situation where Jewish Christians are telling Gentile Christians that pork and shellfish are forbidden, like we have going on kind of in today's circles of Messianic circles, with the Gentile Christians arguing that pork and shellfish are now okay in Jesus. That's what we say from the 21st century perspective when we're reading this passage. Hey, those Gentile Christians in Paul's day, those Jews who were religious, who were raised as Jews, but then came into the knowledge and faith of Jesus, they're still holding on to that Judaism, that old ancient religion, that Torah, the observance, that Moses commandments. They're holding on to all that. And they're saying, no, we can't eat these things. But the Gentile Christians who were not raised with that background of keeping Torah, but do believe in Jesus, they have been eating you know, pork and shellfish and all that other stuff all their life, lobster and crab and oyster and mouse. No, okay, maybe they're not eating mouse. But they're eating all these things that religious Jews wouldn't eat. And so we have these differences, these fights. And Paul's going to step in between the two of them. He's going to referee, and he's going to look at both of them and say, all is clean. Don't worry about it. Everything's clean. Is that really what's going on? No, that's not what this passage is talking about. Okay, that's where I'm going with that. Um, I continue. Wow, didn't mean to do that. I continue. Shaul's definition of food is the very same definition that is master held to. Hello, right? That's kind of a no-brainer. Jesus agrees with God the Father. God the Son, Jesus, the Messiah, his definition of food must agree with what his father laid down because Jesus was altogether righteous. He wouldn't come along and say, pork is okay. Shrimp is okay. Shellfish is okay. Why wouldn't Jesus say that? Because those aren't the definitions that his father gave him in his word. Therefore, follow this line of logic. God defines what is food, what animals are permissible for eating. Jesus comes along and agrees with what his father laid down in the Torah. Paul is a student of Jesus. Paul, as a good Talmud, is going to also come along and agree with what his master taught him. And therefore, since we imitate Paul like he imitates Messiah, like Paul actually tells us, in one sense we're kind of students of Paul in this great endeavor of studying his, his letter right now, then in the same string of, of, of logic, then we have to agree with what Paul says. So, starting from the left side and moving right, going from left to right, we have God, Yeshua, Paul, and then us. And the definitions can't change along this line. Otherwise, we have bad interpretation. We have bad hermeneutics. Okay, we have bad Bible reading. Okay, so that's what's going up. So, I say in my commentary and conclusion, summing up both the Romans passages and this passage here in Timothy, Shaul is not suggesting what I call a vote-based righteousness, where we have half of the community that says this is unclean, we can't eat it, Half the community says it's clean, and Paul says, let's just put it to a vote. 
All in favor of eating pork, say, say, um, I. All in all, all in disagreement, say nigh, right? Or some, some all opposed. I think all in favor, say aye. All opposed, say nigh. All in, all in favor, say aye. All opposed, same sign. Or I, I can't remember what, how they describe it. But is that what Paul's doing here? Hey, everybody, let's put your hands up. Now you throw your hands up. Let's see who's going to vote. Is Can we eat pork? Can we eat shrimp? Can we eat shellfish, lamb, uh, or, um, um, ham, lobster, uh, crawdad, all that stuff? Uh, uh, you know, if that were the case, then obviously the re religious Jews in my little story, they would be outvoted because we know from history and from fact, even from reading the end of Romans here, that the majority of the people in the communities were Gentile Christians, were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. The Jews had already been kicked out of Rome earlier and then brought back in once the uh, Emperor Claudius's edict had um, expired at his death. And so the Jewish people were the minorities now. So if we're talking about a vote-based uh, cash route uh, uh, decision being made, um, they would always probably vote. I'm not saying for sure they would vote to eat non-kosher. Who knows? Maybe they would have voted to keep kosher. I don't know. Um, but it's likely that if we've put that vote by today's Christian churches, it most definitely would fall on the side of, we don't have to keep kosher because most Gentile Christian churches today, most churches they are composed of mostly Gentiles and things like that. That's not a bad thing, by the way. The, the composition of Jew to Gentile, that's not the bad thing. But vote-based righteousness? Wow, that's horrible. That's a bad way to to to, to um, run your church. Okay, man cannot vote on which days we are to worship. Right? Um, compare from Romans fourteen five and six. Any more than man can vote on what defines marital fidelity or what is food. Right? We don't get to take a vote as to what marriages are sanctioned by God. It doesn't work that way. I don't care what what you know the metropolitan churches are saying. I don't care what all of this this um, progressive Christianity is teaching. You know, we don't get the right to say, well, if I accept it, then it's acceptable to God. It doesn't work that way. We don't get the choice of offering up to God whatever form of righteousness that we have defined. God sets the standard, and we are uh, the ones who need to fall in line and um, uh, agree with what God says. It's it's the same with marriage. It's the the same with righteousness. It's the same with food. Um, and in conclusion, again, we're going to finish this tonight, this part at least, I say the passages in question from Shaul cannot be saying that we should apply one standard of righteousness to worship days and marital relations while simultaneously applying a different standard. So we're talking about food and, and fasting and things like that. Applying a different standard of righteousness to food. It doesn't work that way. We can't have our cake and eat it too, pun intended, since we're talking about food. We don't get the, we don't get the freedom to say homosexuality is okay, but we have to keep kosher. Or reverse, homosexuality is not okay, but we don't have to keep kosher. You know, of whatever combination that we're looking at, we we, we neither need to accept all of God's word or we need to throw it all out because picking and choosing doesn't seem to be uh, allowable. And then in conclusion, I say we can't have it both ways. We can't have it both ways. And I'm just reiterating the same thing as I keep saying over and over again. Either God's complete word is our standard of righteous living. I'm talking about the church, by the way. The world, they've got their own standards. There's nothing we can do about them except bring them to a knowledge of Yeshua as uh, the, their Lord and Savior and allow the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside. But we are the church. We are the body of Messiah. So we need to live differently. So either we need to accept all of God's word as our standard of righteous living, including Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, or it's 
uh, or not, right? I'm sorry, that's what the sentence is. We either need to, to accept it all or throw it all out. Um, picking and choosing has never been the allowable vote, right? Uh, playing with that word vote there. And basically, that'll do it. I went a little bit over for the Romans 14 study, but that'll do it for this um, uh, uh uh, section for tonight. Next week, uh, we're ready to turn to section 18, which if you look at my commentary, if I keep scrolling, check it out. That's the end. That's the end of the study. I said we're going to finish this this year. If you also notice, the notes there are blank, right? There's nothing. I haven't, I haven't added them in yet. I'm still composing them. I'll add them this week, and that way we'll be ready to look at them next week. And then we'll probably do a final uh, teaching before the year's out, uh, kind of an excursus, kind of an overview, uh, a summary, um, uh, using a uh, commentary that I have online on my website called What is food and i wrote this commentary let me scroll past the audio uh, links there you can see that i wrote this commentary surrounded by shomer uh shomer mitzvot Torah observant series and i wrote this commentary oh about 10 years ago or so uh last updated to january 4th of, tw of 2009 uh but this is the commentary that formed a lot of the uh research for me for the romans 14 study and for my final conclusion or final summary will draw from this particular um, commentary on what is food and that'll bring uh, the Romans 14 study to a close. But that'll do it for Romans 14 Unplugged. Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. These are the live internet studies. Let me just give you some brief announcements real quick. My name is Ariel Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Colorado, Thornton, Colorado, called The Harvest. Kailat Novad, Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us in person or, at the very least, catch our YouTube commentaries and videos that we upload week after week. The uh, live internet studies are part of commentaries that I put together on my own um, website. You can find me online at tetzetor.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com for more uh, studies, more commentaries, more YouTube videos, more um, iTunes uh, podcasts, and things like that. Just go to my website there. Also, uh, I would like you, if you get a chance, to check out my YouTube channel. You're probably watching this video on a YouTube on a on YouTube channel right now. Um, but uh, if you do find my online on on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash c for the word channel forward slash Tetzator Ministries, uh, be sure to check out all the videos that I have to offer there. Uh, long videos, short videos, something for everyone basically. Um, but do these uh, few things for me. Uh, make sure you subscribe, make sure you like, make sure you thumbs up, make sure you comment, and make sure you share the content with your friends and family members, okay? The uh, announcements, live internet studies, this is episode number 164. Uh, the meeting date is December 4, I'm sorry, December 11th, 2021 USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Uh, the study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. We just finished our Romans 14 study for our first 30-minute. We're about to turn to exploring the Shema, uh, discussions on the issues of Trinity for our second 30-minute segment. And then we have a YouTube video that we may or may not get to, depending on how long my liturgy goes. Goes. Why did God require animal sacrifices in the Old Testament? Um, if we get to it, then we will. But that'll do it for the announcements. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and take the next 25 or 30 minutes or so and look at this. We've been talking about this idea of who or what spirit is indwelling us as believers? Is it God's spirit, Jesus' spirit, or the Holy Spirit? And this is kind of an absurd question because most Trinitarians don't articulate it that way. 
They don't think of like three separate spirits or they don't try to figure out which person of the Godhead is inside them as a believer. They just say that I'm filled with the spirit. And the equivocation on the word spirit there is purposeful because the Bible itself gives us uh, verses here that talk about God's spirit coming to dwell in us. Other passages talk about the spirit of Messiah or Christ's spirit or something like that and or Christ dwelling in us. And then there are other passages, a healthy amount, that talk about that we're filled with the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit in, is, dwells in us or something to that effect. So there is a purposeful equivocation or ambiguity built into this topic of which spirit dwells inside of us. And of course, um, we're not even talking about Ariel's own spirit, who's still in there, so that's really four, if we're, if we're going to be kind of absurd. What we did is we looked at Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Let me read the passage for you, and then let's let's do a bit of an excursus tonight. We'll, we'll um, talk about a topic that was brought up as a result of this passage. Um, this, is, this is still a Trinitarian discussion, but it's not directly tied to the um, notes here that I have. Romans 8, 9 through 11, ESV. Paul speaking says, you, however, are not in the flesh. He's speaking to believers, you. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Verse 10, but, Paul says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. End quote. So what I talked about last week, go back and listen to episode number 163's uh, Shema study, part, I think it's part 95 uh, in that set, part 95, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, this is part 96 that we're dealing with tonight. Um, go back and listen to that, and you'll hear where I talk about the idea that it is God in us, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us. Who's in us, right? Paul uses uh, this opportunity in Romans to weave through this idea that God is complex in the fact that God is in us, and yet Paul understands that to be Christ in us by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God or by the Spirit of Messiah. Well, both. You know, Paul talks about uh, he who raised Jesus from the dead. We entertain the question, who raised Jesus from the dead? And so tonight, as an excursus to this Roman section, it's still part of our Trinity study, we're going to ask the question, um, who raised Jesus from the dead? And that's the question on the table tonight. And I'll just tell you the answer right up front. Nope, I'm not going to tell you right up front. I want you to watch the whole series, okay, if I gave you the answer right up front. Most of you already know the answer. I know most of you are going to answer, but let's, let's, let's parse it. Let's break it down. Let's look at it for a second. All right. So first of all, we have Romans 8 here. Um, Paul's talking about life in the Spirit. And if you just read through this passage, I don't have to read it. We don't have time to read all of this passage. But do your homework tonight, or do your homework this week and read it on your own. Read through all uh, 20... Uh, I'm sorry, all 30, oh gosh, how many verses are there? 39 verses in the chapter. And you'll find that Paul uses the word spirit in the English about 22 times, if I remember counting. I don't know exactly how many that is in the Greek, because I'd have to look at two different manuscript families and account for variants. Sometimes words get dropped. Sometimes words get added uh, between the manuscript families. But the point being is, this passage is his most heavily concentrated spirit. The Greek word would be pneuma. His or pneuma, if you want to drop the p sound. Um, but 
He's talking about the Spirit more often than any other place in his letters in this passage. So this is a heavy spirit. This is a real spiritual passage if I want to sound funny. So go back and read this on your own. All right, so the question that we're entertaining, let's start with gotquestions.org. Great website, great Christian website, great Trinitarian website. Who resurrected Jesus? The question on the table tonight is um, who raised Jesus from the dead or something like that. Um, And um, I had a commentary that I referenced last week, which was from... uh, uh, Pastor Piper, Pastor John Piper, uh, Jesus raised Jesus from the dead or something like that. I thought I had it linked up tonight, but I don't. Maybe if I find it later, I'll look at it. But let's look at um, gotquestions.org real quick. Um, they asked the question, who, rect- who resurrected Jesus? Let's just read some of their answer. Uh, first paragraph right here. In Acts 2.4, Peter says that God raised Jesus from the dead. So that's the basic answer. And you know what? That is the answer to the question. So you can really just stop the video right now, uh, log out of YouTube, and uh, go on your merry way. You got your answer. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus from the dead. End of story. Yes, that's true. That is the basic answer. God resurrected Jesus. However, like they say, as we read more scripture, that basic answer becomes more nuanced. And this is what's really cool about the Word of God. Here's what they have to remind us. Here's what they have to say in this next paragraph. The Bible indicates that all three persons of the Trinity... Is that hard to read when I highlight all of that? Sorry about that. Let's just go like that. Then The Bible indicates that all three persons of the Trinity were involved in Jesus' resurrection. I bet you didn't know that, but that's true. All three persons were involved. Galatians 1.1 says that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. 1 Peter 3.18 says that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And also Romans 1.4. And note that Romans 8.11 clearly says that God will resurrect believers through His Spirit. And then John 2.19, Jesus actually predicts that he will raise himself from the dead. Also reference John 10.18. So that's what John Piper was talking about last week when he talks about Jesus saying, I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. No man takes it from me, blah, blah, blah. So when we answer the question of who resurrected Jesus, we can say that God did. And I think that's the best kind of straightforward, no-nonsense answer. We say that God did. But notice the equivocation on the word God. And by that, we can mean it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's our equivocation. There's our macru, right, or merely an apparent contradiction as a result of unarticulated equivocation. We say God did, but then we have other passages that say that the Spirit did and that Jesus had the power to resurrect himself. Is there a contradiction in the Bible? Is it hopelessly contradictory, like some skeptics would say? Or are we to better understand that the Bible is revealing to us a complex God who is made of one what God and three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In this example, we have to remind ourselves of this over and over again, in this um, picture, God as one what is a description of his um, ontology. It's a description of his nature. It's a description of, it's, it's a study on the nature of God. That's what we mean by ontological trinity. Ontology deals with um, the, 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 the definition of a being, uh, of, or beings, or the makeup, or the constitution, or, or how a thing is uh, uh, composed, or put together, or how it's defined in and of itself. That's what we mean by um, ontological trinity. Um, what's God's uh, 
composition, right? What does, you know, what is God stuff made up? Or what is godliness? What is, I'm not sorry, not godliness. What is the Godhead made up of? By comparison and sometimes or contrast, we have the economic trinity. Economic trinity, I'll, don't worry, I'll put slides on the screen for those of you in post-production. Those of you in my live class, you can't see this. But when we talk about economic trinity or trinity of economies, we're talking about the roles and functions that God plays in the world and in the universe. So when we're talking about that, we bring in the discussion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that's when we talk about the three who's. So one what? is ontological discussion three who's is economic discussion it's important as we discuss as we read through the bible and we encounter any given passage that we stop and kind of ask ourselves is this a passage about the ontology of god or is this a passage about the economy the economies the, the uh, economic trinity and um the reason that's important is that will help us not get tripped up on the seeming contradictions and or ambiguities and or um, cherry-picking passages to make them say what we want them to say. So um, there, uh, the, this got questions um, uh, has some more to say. I'll just read the rest of the uh, answer since it's not very long. They say it may seem puzzling how Jesus could be said to raise himself. Remember last week I stated that the spirit of Jesus raised Jesus from the dead. Meaning when I say the spirit of Jesus, there's a passage from Paul where he talks about in Corinthians that the Lord is the spirit. The Lord is the spirit. Spirit and the word Lord there is not Lord God, but Lord Jesus. Jesus is the spirit. The Spirit of Jesus? What do we mean? There are also other passages in Paul where he talks about this, um, uh, the Spirit of the Son, right? In Galatians uh, chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about how that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father, you know, the Spirit of adoption and things like that. The Spirit of his Son? What do we mean? What is the Spirit of Messiah? How can this? How can Messiah's spirit come to dwell in us? Well, Messiah, in his exalted state, is very one with God. The Word made flesh also is one with God. But Yeshua is a human being. But when he was exalted, glorified, then um, he. This is a difficult to explain, and I'm trying not to get off topic. But Yeshua, Yeshua's spirit can now come to dwell within all of us simultaneously, right across all places he can be in all places at the same time and so it, it's not impossible for us to understand when yeshua says that i have the power to lay down my life i have the power and the authority he used the word authority there this charge that i received from my father i have it so god empowered yeshua or empowered yeshua's spirit to be able to take his own life and then take it up again that's no mere human being right i can't do that on my own I might think I can kill myself or lay my own life down. Maybe I could go so far as to do that. Maybe I have that power. Maybe God has granted me the right to empower uh, to take my own life. God forbid that I would do that, but just follow my example. Maybe as a human I can speak that way, but guess what? I certainly can't take it up again. So when Yeshua spoke those words in John, I can lay it down, I can take it up again, like we're going to read here in a second, that was no mere human speaking. So his spirit was more powerful than your average human spirit. So it's not wrong for us to say that the spirit of Jesus raised up the body of Jesus, right? He raised himself up. That's what I mean. And that's what I stated last week. Uh, some people wrote in to me and said, can you explain that a little bit more? So um, 
how can a dead man have any say in his own resurrection? Uh, God question says, well, the answer is that Jesus was more than a man who died. He was the eternal son of God incarnate. Wicked men could kill his body, but they could not change his eternal nature or diminish his divine power. We read in John 10, 17-18, referenced earlier, Jesus says something that no mere mortal could ever say. I lay down my life, only I take it up again scroll up a bit. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So, um, God questions, remarks, no one else in the history of the world has ever had the authority to both lay down his life and to raise it up again. So, at the very least, we can understand that this is a way of understanding this discussion of who raised Jesus from the dead, is a discussion that allows us to entertain Trinitarian definitions of uh, of God of Jesus in this status. Um, when we say when we ask the question, "Who raised Jesus from the dead?" and we answer, "Well, God raised him from the dead because X Y Z passage," we have to be honest and let the Bible teach us as well equally that. Um, it says in other places that uh, the Spirit raised him from the dead. And in other places, Jesus describes having this power in and of himself. Sounds like a Trinitarian discussion to me, right? So that's what we're looking at. Furthermore, um, according to God questions, their answer here, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, He claimed to be the resurrection himself. How could he state that unless he had this power to, unless he could back up his claim, I am the resurrection? Why shouldn't he, why, why couldn't, why wouldn't he have said, my father is the resurrection and the life. He's the one that has the power to raise me up. Heck, he's the one that grants it to me. Therefore, he, God, the father, is the resurrection and the life. But he didn't say that. He could have. And that would have been, say, scripturally accurate, right? That would have been in perfect harmony with what we read in other places of the Bible, that God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. But he didn't say that. He said, I, first person, I am the resurrection and the life. So this is an inside peek into our understanding of how Yeshua can equate himself with God, right? I and the Father are one. This equality that he shares because he shares this the same nature, the same God stuff that the Father's made up of is the same God stuff that of God stuff that the eternal word was made up of. And uh, of course he incarnated himself and came to earth and took on humanity. He claimed to be the resurrection himself. Uh, God questions goes on to say he has absolute authority over life and death. Revelation 1.18. He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is God, veiled in flesh, I might add, but Jesus is God. He is He is deity, right? He is the full divinity. He has full divinity. He has the same, uh, the, 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 the st- whatever God is made up of is what the eternal word of God is made up of as well. Now, of course, again, um, uh, uh, incarnation notwithstanding, when he walked on earth, there were some limitations to that uh, full human, and thing, and so we understand that. We factor that in, that he has the dual nature. But he could say he would raise up his body on the third day because he, being God, has power over dead uh, power over uh, death. So their conclusion, who resurrected Jesus from the dead? God did. And by that, we mean that all three persons of the Trinity were involved. Like uh, uh, one of the other students in the uh, live class right now was commenting uh, before the class started. Uh, I think that's almost exactly what he said in his answer. All three persons were involved. Absolutely. All three persons of the Trinity participated in creation. 
uh, 1 Corinthians uh, eight sixteen, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. All three are involved in salvation, John 3, 6 and 16. And all three are responsible for what? The resurrection of Christ Jesus. I think what I'll do is we'll draw our Trinity study to a close, make it a little bit shorter so we can leave some room for the uh, liturgy for tonight. We'll pick this up again next week because so, I'm not in a rush. Um, who raised Jesus from the dead? Who resurrected Jesus from the dead? Uh, all three did, but we'll continue looking at this in our next um, uh, episode of Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. Let's begin to wind down and look at our liturgy for tonight. This is going to be a little bit longer. I don't think I'm going to be able to finish this. I'm just going to whet your appetite. And the person who sent in the question um, is just going to have to uh, wait for two weeks to see the full answer. But let me whet your appetite and tell you where we're going to go. Uh, the liturgy is normally just reading from passages out of the Hebrew part of your Bible and then the Greek part of your Bible, Old and New Testaments respectively. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to comment on the words new covenant and um, highlight uh, the word new in the Hebrew rendering as well as the Greek. So we're going to read from Jeremiah 31, 31 next week. I won't read it this week. I'm, I'm just going to tell you what we're going to be reading, but we're not going to look at it tonight. We'll read from Jeremiah 31, 31 out of the Hebrew. Uh, we'll read then some English translations. We'll then start, turn to um, the uh, Hebrew word chadashah, which is found in this passage, and highlight the, some of the nuances related to that. Next, what we'll do is we'll pull up this passage out of the Septuagint and look at an English translation of the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering or Greek translation of the Hebrew. We'll look at an English translation. We'll look at the Hebrew again. And we'll also pull the Greek itself of Jeremiah 31.31 from the uh, Septuagint. And then from that, we'll highlight... Um, some uh, comparisons and contrasts. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 8, which is the longest single running quote from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and it just so happens to be the Jeremiah 31 passage. And so from there, we'll look at Hebrews 8.8, 8, which is just Jeremiah 31.31. We'll look at that in the Hebrew, I'm sorry, we'll look at that in the Greek uh, next week's liturgy, and then we'll look at uh, English as well. And then from there, we're going to center in on one Greek word, uh, which is the counterpart to the Hebrew word, chadasha. It's the word um, kainos. We'll look at that uh, and see why that's important for our study. And then Lastly, as we start to wind down in the liturgy, we'll pull in Hebrews 12.24, which actually um, uses another word for new other than the one that we would expect uh, in the Greek. And from that passage, we'll have to highlight the particular Greek word neos, or neos, if you want to say, uh, and look at the um, nuances to that word. And then lastly, we'll see that there is a Hebrew counterpart, as we're kind of coming full circle, to this word neos uh, in the Hebrew, if we kind of do reverse um, reverse uh, translation from even though the... Uh, um, the book of Hebrews was not written in Hebrew in our Bibles, at least not authoritatively. Uh, we can do reverse uh, translation by using um, uh, words from the Septuagint and linking them up with uh, Hebrew counterparts and finding certain words in those passages that, that would have been used. So we'll do that uh, using um, a passage out of the book of um, Exodus and highlight, uh, you know, 
what this word meant in the uh, Hebrew, right? Uh, the equivalent from there. And then lastly, if we have time, we'll take that passage out of um, out of Jeremiah, out of Hebrews. I'm sorry. Uh, where it talks about the the new covenant, and we'll look at one commentator's perspective on it, namely Tim Haig. If we have time to look at that, you can see the highlight on my page right now. And that will lead us finally to a last verse coming full circle in the book of Colossians, which actually uses both of the Greek words for new, uh, neos and uh, kainos, uh, uses both of them in one verse, and that'll uh, draw the uh, the liturgy portion to a close when we do this next week. But that's that'll whet your appetite. That's, that's what we're going to look at next week um, when the time comes. And when I put this final video together, I might just put the two sections together and not make it week one, week two. I'll just put it together as one week. But that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. So stay tuned for that next week as we uh, unpack that particular uh, uh, study. And I think that'll do it for our study for tonight. I'm not going to watch the video since we're running short on time. We'll draw our study to a close and dismiss in prayer. Those of you with me in the live class, stay with me. Let me do the general dismissal, and then I'll uh, have you open up your microphones, and we can have any any manner of discussions, okay? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I'm so thankful to be part of the opportunity, and a, a small community of like-minded believers who are interested in coming together week after week and fellowshipping with one another via the medium of the internet and Skype and just joining our computers together so we can talk with one another and chat and to share and to pray with one another and to support one another this way. I'm blessed to be a part of their circle of friendship and I'm blessed to be able to call them friends. Bless them and raise them up and protect them. Keep them safe. Uh, keep them healed. Uh, Help us to uh, uh, continue to draw close to you in worship, in prayer, in study, uh, and in obedience. And um, uh, Lord, this is the perspective we have to have if we're going to survive during these very, very stressful days in which we live. Um, Lord, um, uh, keep us safe this week as we depart and go our separate ways. And Bezrat Hashem, Lord willing, bring us back together. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.